Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25. It reads, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Join me for a moment in prayer. Father, we pray that you would give us the same hope that Simeon and Anna had this morning. As they were people who looked to the initial coming of the Savior God, we now look to his second coming. And we rejoice in knowing that when he does come again, we will get to experience eternity with you and your presence apart from sin, apart from any manifestation of sin, apart from pain, apart from brokenness. God, all of these things that we experience in this world that remind us that this world has fallen, we'll be rescued from. And so we look forward to that day, God. Help us to look forward to it all the more as we walk through this passage. Help us to see what it looks like to look forward to that day while having a, a heart of, of, of full devotion to you, while being fully devoted, devoted to worshiping you and all it is that we do, God. Help us to know what it looks like to live lives that are all-encompassing in worship unto you. We don't want to be a people that have separate segments of our lives that is aimed at worship of you, but we want all of our life, God, to be about the worship of you in your great name. And so would you help us to see what that looks like as we observe these two saints in the passage from this morning? Would you also give us insight into what that can look like in our own lives and help us to live that way, God? Father, I pray for my own heart and mind as I prepare to to preach and exhort with the hopes of of, of us being a people who live worshipfully in all that we do. Father, would you help me? I desperately need you, God. As I stand as a human, a mortal man, seeking to communicate on you who's a perfect, immortal, divine being, I plead for your help. I plead for your assistance. I pray that you give me clarity of thought, that you give me concision of speech, that you give me clarity in my articulation. And Father, might all of this be toward the end of your word, piercing the hearts of your people, saving those in the room that may not know you, and continue to build your church. We pray this in the name of Christ, and it's on your Holy Spirit I depend. Amen. What does it mean to look forward to something? 
The phrase I look forward to is one of those phrases that means exactly what it sounds like. It means there's something that is in the future, so it's before you, it's, it's forward from where you're currently standing in time, and it's something that you're probably excited about, so you're looking to it before you get to it. Well, the year 2020 taught many of us that we don't always get to the plans that we look forward to, right? What plans did COVID make you cancel? <laughs> I had many plans for 2020. At the beginning of 2020, Lauren and I started uh, the year by, by moving to Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, and I've been accepted into this pastoral internship at a pretty prominent church under the ministry of a pretty prominent pastor. And there were many things that the group of interns that I was a part of would get to look forward to doing with this pastor. There were conferences that he was scheduled to speak at. And then twice, pastors from all over the world would come to our church and we would put on a conference for them. So there was much to look forward to. My in-laws actually bought me a really nice duffel bag for Christmas in 2019. And when I opened the duffel bag, my first thought was, oh, I can't wait to take all of these trips with this duffel bag. I'm going to be the freshest man at the airport. I can't wait to go and use this bag. And then when we first arrived at the church, there was this an evening service, and, and the new interns would typically introduce themselves at the first evening service they went to. And so we get the chance to introduce ourselves. It's a 1,200-member church, so you want to make a good impression to all of these people. And you want to present yourself as someone who's humble and, and studious and, and, and ready to learn in the internship. So my turn comes, and I say, yeah, like I'm, I'm looking forward to, to learning this and and being sharpened in this area, and being prepared to be a good pastor. Then I was kind of up front, and I was like, plus we're in D.C., so man, I'm looking forward to going on dates with my wife. They laughed. Everybody thought it was funny, but I ended up eating those words. <laughs> like I said, we all know that 2020 was a year where many plans were canceled. So the trips that were planned the dates that Lauren and I look forward to going on, I did a whole internship. None of those things happened. But here's the thing. Life went on. See, the stuff I was looking forward to were all good things. They would have been enjoyable things. But none of them were life-altering things. So when they were canceled, life went on. Life continued. Friends, the coming of Jesus is an event that we look forward to. But unlike all of those that I just mentioned, it has to happen in order for life to go on. Before he first came and, and lived on earth and was crucified for the sins of man and, and rose from the dead, affording man the chance at salvation, he was looked forward to as the hope for salvation. And now that he has come and, and done all that is required for us to be saved, and, 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 and lived a perfect life and, 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 and died on the cross and resurrected and now returned to heaven and promised that he's going to come again, we today look forward to his second coming as the hope for eternity in heaven. The coming of Christ must happen for life to go on. And in our passage this morning, there are two characters. There's Anna and there's Simeon, and they model for us what it looks like to wait on our Savior to anticipate his coming with an all-encompassing worship and devotion to him while we wait. If you look real quickly at verse 25 and then verse 38, you'll notice that the phrase looking forward is used in both of those verses. Uh, first, it describes Simeon, and then it describes Anna and those that she witnessed to about having seen the Savior. 
And so this phrase kind of acts as a bookend in this passage. And the characters of the passage, they show us what it looks like to look forward to the coming of our Savior. And they teach us that in living the Christian life and striving for all-encompassing devotion to God, looking forward to the coming of Christ, we should be a people who are, one, guided by the Spirit, two, waiting on the Son, three, trusting of the Father, and four, worshipful for our souls. We should be guided by the Spirit, waiting on the Son, trusting of the Father, and worshipful for our souls. So first, let's look at being guided by the Spirit as we worship God and look forward to salvation. We want to be guided by the Spirit. The passage opens up telling us about a man in Jerusalem by the name of Simeon. And it first describes his character to us. It says that he was a righteous and devout man. Righteous meaning he would have been justified by God because of his beliefs in God as the one true God. And devout meaning he would have been careful in carrying out the will of God and and acting in accordance with God's commands. So the first thing we see about this man, right after his name is told to us, is that he was a faithful and devoted worshiper, worshiper of God. I want to be that kind of man. Anybody else want to be that kind of person? Or your name is mentioned, and the next thought is about how faithful and devoted you are to God. And the next thing we see about Simeon is that in addition to being devoted to God, he also hears from God. The text tells us that, he, that the, the Holy Spirit was on him, and then it mentions that the Holy Spirit does two other things in, in the next two sentences. The Holy Spirit mentions twice more in those next two sentences. And we don't know much about Simeon outside of what we see here. This is the only time he's ever mentioned in Scripture. But this one time that he is mentioned, it seems that he's a pretty admirable man. His name is told. It says that he's a worshiper. And then three times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Look at him. Look at verses 25 to 27. At the end of verse uh, verse 25, the Holy Spirit was on him. The middle of verse 26, it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Beginning of verse 27, guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. Oops. But in looking at Simeon, what we see is that we've got this faithful worshiper, worshiper of God, and right as Luke introduces him to us, we see it emphasized that he has this evident communion and, and, and close relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. And I don't think Luke does this by mistake. See, in more conservative theological camps, we, we tend to not talk about the Holy Spirit and his work as much as our brothers and sisters in some other less conservative theological camps. And so it'd be easy for us to get here and to, to make the mistake of reading this and just kind of glazing over three separate mentions of the Holy Spirit as if they're not even there. But I don't want us to make that mistake this morning because they are there. The Holy Spirit is mentioned. As a matter of fact, the mentioning of the Holy Spirit has kind of been this, this undercurrent that has carried us along throughout the whole narrative of Luke that we've studied thus far. In Luke 1.15, it was said about John the Baptist that he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. And then in Luke 1.35, Mary was told that, that Jesus would be conceived because the Holy Spirit would come upon her. In Luke 1.41, when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, John the Baptist leaps inside of her, and, and, and the text tells us that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke 1.67, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies about the coming birth of Jesus. So we see this undercurrent where the Holy Spirit is present, and he's active among these people in a way that honestly can't be denied. And then we get here, 
to find that Simeon's life also shows us that God, the Holy Spirit, is active. And when we get here, I think it'd be good to remember that part of being all-encompassing in our devotion to God means being led by God, the Holy Spirit. See, Luke's writing makes it abundantly clear for us that the Holy Spirit plays a unique role in the lives of his people. And so we want to be faithful to acknowledge that. We see it in the text, and we want to give ourselves to, to seeking to understand what that means. Like, as the people of God, we know that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and he leads and guides us in our actions. God's word tells us that the Holy Spirit is a companion given to us as a gift, and he's also the gift giver of life itself. The Holy Spirit is the one who led Moses and the Israelites through the wilderness. He hid them from the chasing Egyptians. He helped Samson to rip a lion into pieces. He empowered the prophets of the Old Testament to point God's people back to righteousness. And now that we've all seen righteousness in Christ, he's still helping his people even today. He's our counselor. He's, he's the one who reveals truth to us. He's the one who brings the Father's love to us. He's the source of life from God the Father. He's the source of new life in Christ. He, he, he leads us, friends. He helps us. He testifies on our behalf. He sanctifies us. He empowers us. He prays and intercedes for us when we can't pray and intercede for ourselves. And the most important thing, the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the way the Holy Spirit works in the lives of his people. He does all of this. And what I'm trying to drive home this morning is that God, the Holy Spirit, has always been among his people, working to help us know and and, and worship our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, to live a life of all-encompassing worship unto God or excitedly looking forward to Jesus' return means to live a life of being led and guided by the Holy Spirit. And I, I want to put my cards on the table. The reason I just went through all of that and mentioned how the Holy Spirit works and, and the reason I'm placing such an emphasis on these verses where the Holy Spirit is mentioned is because I think there's a need for some recalibration and balance within the church. See, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we have the tendency to go to one of two extremes. Sometimes we go to the extreme of being overly cautious and, and critical anytime the Holy Spirit comes up in conversations. Some of y'all might be really uncomfortable at this point in the sermon. And in other times, we, we go to the extreme of speaking wrongly about the Holy Spirit, and, and we talk about him all the time, but we talk about him as if he's this, this mystical genie in a bottle or, or this ghostly friend that we can give direction to and make up stories about what he's doing. And here's the truth. Both of those extremes are wrong. Those are two different ways that the church often abuses or neglects the Holy Spirit in our thinking and talking about him. The Holy Spirit is not one to be overly cautious of, nor one to be neglected in conversation as if he doesn't exist. But he's also not a genie, nor a pet ghost that we can kind of carry around on a leash and make do tricks when we want to appear to be super spiritual. That's not who the Holy Spirit is. He's a third person of the Godhead. And in the same way that God the Father and God the Son, in the same way as them, he's a divine being who is worthy of our acknowledgement and worship and submission to He's present in our lives. He's compassionate. He leads us with grace and mercy. So again, I think there's a need for balance in the way that we view and talk about God, the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be overly critical and cautious when we discuss him, but we also don't want to be overly mystical in the ways we talk about him. We want to embrace the mystery of him as a person of the Godhead and, and then seek to understand him in the ways that he reveals himself in Scripture and then just kind of lean into his work in our lives. And so people may say, 
well, how do I do that? <laughs> it's like, I hear you talking, cool. But you may be sitting there thinking, if being led by the Spirit is part of living an all-encompassing devotion to God, then I want to do it, but how? How is he talked about in Scripture? How do I know when he's working in my life? First, let me say this. You'll never fully understand this on this side of heaven. There's a mystery to God that we won't be able to fully comprehend until we're present with him in heaven. But until then... We do have what his word makes clear about him. We can try to understand his word for now. And and all of those examples I just mentioned a minute ago were were pulled directly from God's word itself. So in God's word, we see that the Holy Spirit is comforter and counselor. And he's a gift to us. And he's the one who helps us see truth. He's all of these things. And then in this passage with Simeon, we see that he's also a guide. Look at how verse 27 starts again. Guided by the spirit. Simeon entered the temple. So the Holy Spirit guides his people. But here's the thing. He always guides us into worship. That's one thing that we can bank on. The Holy Spirit's guidance is always toward the end of worship. He ain't guiding us toward the end of our own selfish agendas. He ain't gotten us toward the end of anything ungodly or unbiblical. He ain't gotten us toward some mystical reality of of living with fairies and imaginary friends, but he always guides us into worship. So the way for us to follow the Spirit, the way for us to be led by the Spirit as we attempt to to live in all-encompassing devotion to God, we we follow him into worship. And so if you're at a point and, and you're asking yourself the question like, is this the Holy Spirit leading me? Well, the way to answer that question is like, is the end of this desire worship unto God? Is my heart postured and aimed at worshiping him or am I being driven by something else and trying to call it the Holy Spirit? He always leads us into worship. Look at how he leads Simeon. Verse 27, guided by the Holy Spirit, Simeon enters the temple, which was a place of worship, and it was there that he'd meet Jesus Christ, the Savior, who is worthy of our worship, friends. That's where he met Jesus in the temple. So we see that all of this was was ultimately about him going to meet the Savior and then worshiping the Savior. It wasn't about Simeon and, and his desires or status or pride or anything that he could boast in, but it was about him finding Jesus the Lord and being able to boast about his Savior. That's the way the Spirit works, friends. He lifts hearts and minds and eyes and worship unto him, but he never leads us for the sake of our boastful chest being lifted in worship of ourselves. And so the counsel he gives, the comfort he provides, the guidance he offers, it's not for us to be counseled in mystical ways that lead us to see our own mystical agendas be fulfilled, but it's for us to be counseled in supernatural ways that help us to be used in fulfilling the agenda of God. This is the way he works. And Simeon shows us that we should be guided by him. But then he also shows us that we should be guided by him in waiting on the Son. So in living a life of all-encompassing devotion unto God, be guided by the Spirit and also be waiting on the Son. Point number two, be waiting on the Son. Look at how this all plays out for Simeon. He's guided into the temple, and then Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple so they could perform his dedication to the Lord. It was traditional for Jews like them to have these kind of ritualistic uh, dedications that they would do with, with newborn babies. And so they get to the temple, Simeon's in the temple, 
And verse 28 says that he takes baby Jesus into his arms and he begins praising God. Now, I don't know if he got Mary's permission to to scoop her newborn baby into his arms to praise the Lord, but my hope is that he would have at least introduced himself first, right? But we see he comes in and he scoops Jesus into his arms. And man, on that note, um, just a, a freebie from a dad who has an infant. Parents don't like it when you touch their children randomly. So if you're one of those people that just goes up to random babies and starts squeezing cheeks, um, stop it. <laughs> like, introduce yourself first. Let the parents at least know your name before you start squeezing baby cheeks. Um, it's funny we, we see this in the passage. Lauren and I, we've actually talked about how having our son during the pandemic gave us a real appreciation for prophecy. Because he was born and, and, and we were at the hospital with three days where we just got to, to get to know our son and, 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 and enjoy having become parents without any disturbance from anybody else. But that wasn't the case for Mary and Joseph. Remember, we saw last week that shortly after Mary birthed Jesus, these random shepherds show up and, and they're all excited to tell Mary and Joseph about how angels appeared and, 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 and they'd come to, to, to tell them that they needed to come and find their baby who was the savior of the world. And then now they go into this temple and they're just trying to, to dedicate their son according to tradition. But when they get there, this random man wants to hold him. And this is after they've done They've done all this traveling from, from Bethlehem, uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and now to Jerusalem. And all along the way, people have been showing up randomly, giving unexpected attention to their child. So they might be frustrated, right? They got an infant, a newborn. They're walking miles. And these people keep coming out of nowhere. Let me see the baby. This is the Savior. They're probably a little frustrated. But then again, they might also be empathetic toward these people. See, the thing is, everybody who came to to find Jesus, they met him and they instantly began to praise because they knew that the promised Savior had arrived. And Mary herself, she even she knows that Jesus was conceived because the Holy Spirit rested on her and an angel appeared to her and told her that their son was the promised Savior of the world. And so, yeah, Mary's probably a little frustrated. All these random people keep coming out of nowhere, trying to touch her son. But she can probably also understand where these people are coming from. She can probably look at them with empathy. She can probably see Simeon's point of view and understand why this was such a big deal. All of this man's life, he'd waited on the birth of that baby. His entire life, he'd been waiting on the birth of Christ. I mentioned at the beginning that the text says he was looking forward to Israel's consolation. Well, this baby was the Messiah who would come to console Israel like it had been prophesied for thousands of years. So all of his life, he's waiting on this birth. He comes to the temple and there he is. So of course, Simeon wants to hold Jesus. His entire life had revolved around this child's arrival. And so much so that he makes the statement in verse 29. Look at verse 29. It says, now master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. Now that word dismiss literally means to, to let go or release. So what Simeon's saying is, is I don't need you to sustain my life anymore, God. I can die now because I've seen the Savior. I read that this week, Andre, and I thought, man, what a way to live. Like, what a way to live. And having met Christ the Savior, all of Simeon's desires in life were met. What a way to live, pioneer people. He's seen the Savior. 
He didn't even need to see anything else. Isn't that a picture of what our lives should look like? This is all-encompassing devotion to God. When having met Christ is, is, is so fulfilling to us that we feel all we want in life has been granted. And we can look forward to the day, whenever it may be, that God leads us to the point of death. Like, I'm not saying that we should walk around and, and live morbidly wishing that we were dead. That's different than what Simeon shows us here. But I am saying that we should have such assurance in knowing that death for us means heaven with our creator. We should have such assurance in knowing that, that there's a part of us that can actually joyfully look forward to the day where we cross over into eternity. So what is it that keeps us from living that way? What is it that keeps us from reflecting Simeon in the ways that we live. What I think is that we probably value what we have in our earthly lives too much. We're, 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 we're not living with our minds set above like Paul commands in Colossians 3, 2. And so the things here below, they make us think that they're worth staying here for. Catch this. The temporal things in life can make us think that these things are so, the temporal things of this life can make us think that these things are better than the eternal rewards of life and glory. The temporal things of this life can make us think that they're better than the eternal rewards of life and glory. And they're not. Life and glory and the rewards he offers us there will be so much better. So set your minds on things above, friends. How is it that Simeon could look forward to death when he met Jesus, well, it was because he had a true understanding of who Jesus was. And when he met him, he rejoiced because of that. I want us to look at what he says about Christ in his praise. In verses 30 through 31, he calls him the salvation that is prepared in the presence of all peoples. This is Simeon pointing out that Jesus had come as a savior for any in the world who would follow him in spite of their ethnic backgrounds. Uh, up to this point, there had been kind of an ethnic association to God's people. So if you were an Israelite, you were born into the nation that was known for worshiping God. But now, at this point in the story, Simeon's saying, even those who aren't Israelites, they're going to get to see and know that salvation has come in Christ. And then in verse 32, he, he reinforces this when he says that Christ is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and, and glory to Israel. So Christ has arrived and, and he's the light of the world and this light will allow Gentiles for the first time ever to see that salvation has come and it'll allow Israel to see the glory of the one who came to save, the one that they long awaited. And then in verses 34 through 35, he tells Joseph and Mary even more of what he knows about Jesus. He hints at the crucifixion and the suffering that Jesus would see when he tells Mary that a sword would pierce her soul. And then he talks about how, how Jesus would cause many in Israel to rise and to fall. This is because the would forever change the world and, and people would have to make a choice. Repent and follow Christ as Savior or do the opposite and look to an eternity in hell. Simeon knows all of this about the Savior and knowing these things enabled him to live a life of all-encompassing devotion to God. He was waiting on the Son and he was rejoicing in what he knew to be true about the Son. And so we should do the same, friends living a life of all-encompassing devotion to God by being guided by the Spirit, by waiting on the Son, and then also here by trusting in the Father. Let's look at trusting in the Father. Now, the interesting thing about Simeon's response when he meets Jesus is that he knew that this introduction could, could mean that death was near for him. 
Back in verse 26, we see it says that it had been revealed to him that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. And then in verse 29, after he sees Jesus, he erupts into praise of the Father because he knows that this is the Lord's Messiah whom he'd been waiting to see. Now, two things to note about Simeon's praise here. He refers to Jesus as the Lord's possessive Messiah. And then when he meets him, he recalls the promise that he'd die in peace like the Father had told him through the Spirit. Now, Simeon shows us in this that he understands that salvation has come because God the Father has sent Jesus the Son in order to save a rebellious people. So Jesus is the Father's method of salvation, and it's been revealed to Simeon that when he meets Jesus, life for him might be shortly over, might be over shortly afterwards. But Simeon still responds with joy and praise when he meets Jesus. Like there's this kind of two-pronged promise. There's the, the positive prong of him getting to meet the Messiah, and then there's this, this negative prong of death being closer than before, looming at the door, having the potential to take him out at any time. And so we basically see here what we just talked about in the last point. Simeon's life totally revolves around this positive prong, him meeting the Messiah to the point that he's not even phased by the negative prong. He just rejoices because the Messiah has come and he's gotten to meet him. He even says, God, you can take me now because I found fulfillment in knowing that redemption has finally arrived in Jesus. And he's able to say this, friends, because he was trusting in the Father. He knew that God's will for his life was better than his own will. And he actually shows us three beliefs he has about God the Father with the way that he praises. With what he says about Jesus being the Lord's Messiah who God prepared, he's showing that he believes God is the one who gives salvation. When he submits to God and prays and, and says that God can dismiss him once he's met Jesus, he shows that he believes God is the one who controls life and death. And when he mentions that, that, that salvation has been prepared in the presence of all peoples, he models the belief that God is a God for all people who come to him in Christ. And each of these things, all of these beliefs we've already looked at earlier in the sermon, but looking at them here kind of compiled on top of one another like this, it helps us to see Simeon's system of belief and it's his system of belief that enables him to trust in God the Father. And it's his trust in God the Father that enables him to live a life of all-encompassing devotion to God. And it's these same three beliefs, friends, that will enable us to live a life of all-encompassing devotion to God. We got to know that God gives the grace of salvation. We couldn't save ourselves, and so he provided salvation for us in Jesus. Then we got to know that God is the one who controls life and death. Each of us are here because God has given the gift of life. But as Job teaches us in, in, in Job 121, God is the one who giveth and the one who taketh away. And that includes life and death. Psalm 139 is another verse that comes to mind when thinking about this. It, it tells us that God knows and writes each of our days into existence before any of them ever began. And this provides peace for us who trust in God. We don't have to fear death because we know that death for us means new life and eternity with our creator. And even, even when those we love die and loved ones are taken away from us in this life, we can find reassurance knowing that all lives begin and end in God's timing. Even though we grieve and, and we sometimes don't fully understand why a life has ended, we can know that it hasn't ended in arbitrary timing. God is the one who controls life and he controls when it begins and ends. So we can trust him with life, and we can also trust him with death, even when we don't fully understand it. And then we can also trust 
and God the Father because he sent Christ to salvation for all people who follow him. Just like I, I said a minute ago, Simeon knows that God has sent Christ for all people who would follow him. And he rejoices because he sees baby Jesus. And he knows that this not only means that he'll be saved, but he'll also have many brothers and sisters who can come and, and trust in the Savior. God's word tells us that he desires for every human to be saved into the eternal blessing of his own presence in heaven. And then he prepared that salvation for us in Christ. He prepared the salvation of our souls and he offered it to us by sending Christ to give his life up and a bloody death on a cross so that by his bloody death, the penalty and debt of our sin could be wiped away and we can have the hope and the, the, the chance to be made new with everlasting hope for a second life because Jesus went before us when he resurrected from the dead. That's the hope of the gospel, friends. Is that truth? The truth of the gospel that offers all of us any of us who lay our lives down in repentance and faith and follow Christ, it offers all of us the chance at salvation. And it should make all of us desire to live with all-encompassing devotion to God, through guidance of the Spirit, waiting on the Son, trusting in the Father. And then for my last point here, worship for the sake of our soul. Worship for the sake of our soul. As we move to this concluding point, I want to look at the next character of the passage. Our sister Anna is a great model of worship for the soul's sake. Now she models this and she modeled everything else that we've seen thus far. I imagine that she was guided by the spirit. She, she certainly had been waiting on the son. The testament of her life tells us that she would have been one to trust in the father. But the reason I bring her up here when I mention worship for the soul is because I think Anna is the epitome of what this looks like. Read verses 36 to 38 with me again. It says, There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. And at the very moment of her hearing Simeon's praise about the Savior it says that she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, these verses tell us a few different things about Anna. It tells us that she's a prophetess, which literally means one who, who spoke the truth of God. She probably did a lot of teaching and, 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 and encouraging and exhorting to other women who would come to worship at the temple. It tells us that her lineage went back to the Israelite tribe of Asher, which means that she was a Jew who would have been well informed about the different Jewish rituals. And it also tells us that she was old and widowed. <laughs> the text says that she'd been married, that her marriage lasted for seven years, then her husband died. And now the original language isn't extremely clear about how long Anna had lived as a widow. So some translations will, will read as if she herself was 84 years old, and it's unclear about exactly how long she'd been a widow. And then other translations like the CSB we have, it reads as if she was married for seven years, but she's been a widow for 84 years, so the uncertainty is more around the exact number of her age. But at the end of the day, we see two things about Anna. She's old, and she's been a widow for a really, really long time. And this is why I believe she models for us what it looks like to worship for the sake of our souls. This was during a time when a woman wasn't permitted to do almost hardly anything. Women were viewed as... as as, as inferior and their identities were wrapped up in whatever it was that their husbands did. So for a woman to have been married for only seven years would have most times been devastating to that woman's life. See, most women would have either remarried or they would have lived a long, a long, long life feeling as if they lacked significance 
and lacked meaning and lacked purpose. We've heard other Bible stories of women that were in this situation. Like a woman without a family in this day was most often a woman who would have an aching soul and a longing within her soul. And she would have probably tried to fill her soulish void with all the things that society would have told her she needed to fill it with. But not Anna. (laughs) That's not the case with Miss Anna. Our passage tells us that she was a woman who never left the temple. It says she devoted herself to fasting and praying in the night and during the day. And so when Anna's husband, the thing that society told her she needed to, to find her identity in, when he was taken away from her, she placed her identity in the only place it is actually worthy of being. She placed her identity in her God and her God-given purpose to be a worshiper of him. So we may say, well, Miss Anna, like, like, weren't you hurting? Like, wasn't this a, a tough, agonizing life? Like, wasn't your soul aching? Not only were you widowed, but you, you, you were widowed for a really, really long time, and you lived a, a, a long life without a husband. And I bet Anna would say, yes. I had moments of hurting. My soul did ache. I missed my husband dearly, and I saw tough times as an old widow in ancient Jerusalem. But in the midst of my soul's aching, I turned to God. And friends, our God comforts those who come to him. We see in the life of Anna that our God comforts those who come to him. And we should, we should heed this model that she sets for us. Like, I don't know who may be in the room with an aching soul, nor do I know why your soul may be aching. But I do know that the greatest medicine for an aching and a longing soul is the worship of the God who comforts souls. Here's this old woman, this old widow even, who finds great fulfillment and purpose in the worship of God. So let's take this as a message for us all, friends. We can find our fulfillment and purpose in God and God alone. And, 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 and as a matter of fact, no matter what society says about women or old people or single people, we can also note from the life of Anna that God uses those who make themselves available for his use. So society may try to make people inferior because of, of, of some demographic that they fit into, but Anna models for us. The one demographic we fit into for the, the use of God is worship of him. And we see from the way that Anna lives that we can also be sustained and, and, and live a prosperous life even if we don't do, even if we don't do anything other than make ourselves available for the worship of God. We need to live our lives being worshipful of God for the sake of our souls. And Anna shows us what that looks like. Anna also shows us, I'm closing with this. She also shows us something else in the way that she responds when she meets Jesus. Verse 38 is one of those verses that it'd be easy to kind of forget about. Like, it's the last verse in this story, and you can just kind of say, okay, yeah, Anna went and praised, and then we move on. But that verse has a lot to teach us about what proper worship actually is. The text tells us that Anna heard Simeon's praise, and and then she came and saw baby Jesus, then she also started praising. And now note this really quickly. The combination of their praise shows us what holistic praise in the life of a Christian should be. Simeon sees baby Jesus, and and he immediately begins praising vertically. So there's this, this direct conversation that he starts to have with God. But Anna praises God, and we see that she also spoke to those around her in praise of God. And this is what praise in the Christian life looks like. It's a vertical reverence for God, 
where we rejoice about him and rejoice to him about how good and great he is to us. But it's also a horizontal praise where we remind our brothers and sisters about how good God is and offer encouragement in that. So praise of God should be both vertical and horizontal. That's what God desires for us. He's curated us and wired us to praise and worship him in this way. And I look at the verse, it's verse 38 and note that it says, Anna goes to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. I'm pointing this out because this means that there was a specific group who was understood to be the people who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Like this was a group that, that Anna could identify and, and, and she could go specifically to them and say, I've seen the Savior. Specific group, she knew who to go to. There was no cluelessness about who it was. Now why is this? Well, I think it's because these people were all waiting and they were looking forward to the coming of Christ and they were doing it together as a community. And so I want us to take a couple of cues from this. First, to those of us who are here, maybe visiting with, without a church family that we're committed to and, and actively members of, let this be an example for you. Don't live in that in-between state as a visitor for too long. You don't have to join Pioneer, but you want to find some church body that you can go to and formally commit to so that you're identified as a part of the group who's waiting on Christ. Find the people to commit to and then wait on Christ with those people. And then secondly, those of us who are members of Pioneer, let's, let this be an encouragement for us to be active in discipling one another. This is one thing I'm still waiting eagerly to, to see really take root and, and begin ha- taking place within the life of our church. Like, I'm glad that we've got good, friendly relationships where we, we hang out all the time and people love being together, but I don't think hanging out is enough. Like, we shouldn't be just hanging out. When Anna went to these people, she didn't go just to hang out, but she, she went in and, and she spoke about the Savior that she'd seen, and, and, and I bet this was probably a normal part of their conversations. So please, beloved, hear me. Continue to spend time together. Do that. By all means, continue to hang out. But let's make sure that some of the time we spend together and some of the relationships we're building within the church body are purposely aimed at the end of spiritual growth. That's what God desires for us. And I know this term discipleship is, is, is kind of become a Christian buzzword and, and, and some people may not even know what it means. Like, what, what is discipleship? All I'm saying is this. Find one Two, find, find one or two, three people. Commit to regularly get together. Read the word. Pray. Be honest about how your walk with God is going. And then hold one another accountable in your walks with God. It doesn't have to be a more mature Christian with a less mature Christian. It can be that, but it can also be people that just get together along the same level of maturity to encourage one another, to hold one another accountable, to remind one another of the truth of God's word. Prayer, the word, transparency, accountability, all of those things aimed at spiritual growth. That's what discipleship is. It's what I bet Anna had with this group that she testifies to, and it's what I pray that Christ gives us. I'm going to close with this. Y'all know those uh, what if or what would you do games? Like you, you have that, the games where you, you make up something and you say, if you were ever in this situation, what would you do? Or if this happened right in front of you, how would you respond? And then the person responds and everybody laughs about what the different responses are because it shows you like people's personalities and stuff. Well, one scenario that people tend to mention in that game is if you were ever stuck in an elevator and you're on like the, the 33rd floor with complete strangers, what would you do? And now 
I've been asked that question, and this is kind of where my, 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 my response bucks against the system of the game. Like, I, I don't necessarily play by the rules because I almost want to be like, like, what do you mean, stuck? Like, like, the elevator may stop moving, the doors may be temporarily shut, but I don't believe in being stuck, especially in small places. And so my answer is like, I, I got to go. Like, I'm, what would I do? I'm, I'm getting out of the elevator. Like, I've, I've seen and experienced too much in this life. To, to, to know what it's like and to wait on somebody to come get me and take me back to it. Like if I can get out of the elevator myself, I'm breaking out and, and I'm moving on with life. That's what I'm going to do in this situation. <laughs> but then I read this passage and it makes me rethink my answer. Why does it make me rethink the way I answered that question? Well, it's because I see a group of people. They were waiting on their rescue together. And I can imagine that in spite of their differences and, and the strangeness between them when they first met, their come and wait for rescue probably fostered a depth in a relationship. If you're ever stuck in an elevator, whether it's with strangers or not, I bet you never forget the people you're stuck with. There's an appreciation for them. And there's this common identity of like, like hey, we were stuck together. We waited together. We were rescued together. And now, in spite of where life was before or where life goes from here, we rejoice together. Friends, let's wait. Let's wait on our Savior with all-encompassing devotion to him. But let's do it together so that when we're rescued, we can rejoice together. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be patient in our waiting on you. We know that you have promised the second coming of Christ, and we so look forward to that day. But I pray and ask that you would sustain us in the here and now, both as individuals and as a corporate church body. Help us to see that we don't have to, to wait alone. We don't have to strive to live in all-encompassing devotion to you by ourselves. But we can do it as a part of community. You've given us that gift. And we thank you for it. We pray that you would make us patient waiters for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.